Hey, good morning, church. Happy Father's Day. No, I got a couple. Happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. All right, man, I'm excited about today. Um, I'm a dad. Um, I've got uh, four children, um, and uh, they are ages 12 down to six, and I love uh, Father's Day. I'm super excited about today. We're going to go have some really delicious food for lunch, and then I think they have something planned for me this evening, um, and I'm, I'm stoked about today. I hope that you are also excited uh, about today, but I do know uh, that in this, in this room, more than likely, there are uh, two groups of us, those of us who are really excited about Father's Day and those of us who kind of dread this day when it comes around every year. Um, and, and I know that's true because I know that there are, there are people in this room who um, had things in between them and their father and their father's passed away before those things could be resolved and those things have gone unresolved. I know that uh, in this room there are people who still have tension with their dads right now um, that's unresolved. Maybe you're not speaking with your father and and that causes pain. There's guys in this room who, who wanted to have kids and that never happened for them. God never gave them that gift and that's a difficult thing. But here's uh, what I want you to hear this morning. If you are rejoicing like I am about Father's Day, the Lord is rejoicing with you. If you are sorrowful about today, the Lord is sorrowful with you. Uh, scripture says he is close to the brokenhearted and he is here today with you and he wants to mourn with you and, and walk you through that. Um, but in any case, I believe God has some something for us today, that he wants to speak to us, that he has a word for us, uh, that he is going to, through his word, uh, speak life into our lives uh, this morning. And if we would take the time to, to listen to him, to hear from him, uh, and to put into practice the thing that he's going to show us, I think it will bring new life into our, uh, into our lives, into our relationships, and into our world. And so I just want to take a moment, uh, because I, I, I get that we're in kind of different places sometimes, and I just want to take a moment and focus in and say, hey, God, you are here and we are ready to listen. So would you join me just in a posture of receiving? Just put your hands out and we're just going to pray and declare to God that we are ready to receive what he has for us today. Heavenly Father, I thank you, God, that you are the father to the fatherless, that you are the perfect father that we can all look to. Father, I thank you that you are a good and gracious God. I thank you for the gift of fathers. Father, I thank you also uh, for our time together this morning. I thank you that you have a word, that you uh, are not done moving and speaking, that you have something for us, and that you are here ready to show that to us this morning. I pray, God, that you would open our hearts, open our ears, open our, our minds to what you have to say, that you would make it clear to us what you're calling us to do, where you're leading us to, that you would give us the strength uh, and the courage to say yes to you, to follow you into that, uh, that we could have the life that you promised. And so, God, we look forward to what you're going to do today. We trust you to do it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Sam. I'm the family discipleship pastor here. Our senior pastor, Pastor Darren, uh, was just in the baptistry, which is fun. We don't get to see him in there very often, but he'll be back uh, in the pulpit next week, uh, picking up with uh, marriage. Again, a third week on, on marriage from Ephesians uh, chapter 5. Uh, we have been in this book of Ephesians for a while, um, but uh, today we're going to take a little bit of a different approach to Ephesians. And, and the reason is uh, because uh, as I was prepared, thinking about this message for Father's Day, and looking at these relationships that we're supposed to uh, unpack today, I, I kind of realized that, that there's something that I've learned as a dad over the years. You know, I said my oldest is 12. Um, I have a son who's 10, so I've been building Legos uh, for about 14 years. Did you get that? I'm not joking. My wife will tell you. 
As soon as we found out we were pregnant, we were walking through the Lego aisle, okay? Uh, but anyway, um, we've been putting things together as parents uh, for a long time, uh, for many, many years. And, and just a couple of weeks ago, we took down some bunk beds as we're getting ready to move. But uh, we have uh, basically earned an honorary bachelor's degree in toy engineering because of how many things we've put together over the years, I'm pretty sure. But in all of that, I've learned some things uh, that I think are going to be applicable to us here today. Um, and, and one of our favorite things to do is Legos, right? We love to put Legos together. I have seriously have probably built 20 or 30 uh, significant Lego sets in the last 10 years with my son. Uh, and so we, I know a thing or two about Legos. And when we first started doing Legos, um, I was the one doing most of the work. And then my son would be sitting next to me going, yeah, that piece goes there. And I'm like, I know, buddy. I like, I'm on it. I got it. Right. And because they just weren't, they didn't have the dexterity. They weren't on it. Also, I love Legos. Um, but then I learned that Legos are actually for my son. And so I let him put them together. Which created some new challenges for us because as my son was putting Legos together, um, he, would, he would be doing his Legos, following along the instructions, and then he would get stuck. Now, if you've ever put Legos together, you know that the instruction manual for Legos is a little bit difficult, right? I mean, it's not the most helpful thing in the world. It's all pictures. There's no words. There's no actual instructions. It's just diagrams, right? It's a lot like building something from Ikea. There's, there's no words at all, Okay. And so you have to like figure out like what's going on. But here's what would happen. Uh, my son would be building and he, he would get stuck and he, would, he couldn't figure out why it wasn't working or, or how this piece was supposed to go together. And so he said, dad, I need your help. And so I'm excited to help. I come over and, and it's Legos, right? I can't wait. And so I jump in and we've got the book open to the middle and there's a little diagram and I'm going, this doesn't make any, like, I don't know. This doesn't make any sense at all. And what I learned was what I need to do sometimes is instead of just jumping into that page, I, it, it's helpful to step back and go, what are we building? Like, are we building a, a Lego Ninjago dragon here or, or are we building something from Star Wars? Like, because it's, it, it helps me frame up what we're doing. It helps me get perspective on this specific instruction, how this piece is supposed to fit in with the rest of it, right? And, and so that stepping back and knowing what we're doing, what we're trying to accomplish, what we're trying to build is helpful when we step into that moment. Looking just at those two little pictures isn't always the most helpful thing. I mean, we need those instructions to be able to move forward, but we've also got to have the perspective. Now, the other thing I learned is that with Legos, there's kind of a pattern. And if you've, if you've put Legos together, you know that this is true. You, you know that when you see a really long, flat piece, more often than not, that piece is a structural piece that a whole bunch of other things are going to fit together on, right? It's going to hold a whole bunch of stuff together. And more often than not, if you see a small flat piece, that's probably more decorative or detailed. Now, not always, but probably more likely that's going to be decorative or detailed. And the reason that becomes important is when you step in the middle and you're looking at this picture, you realize if it's a long piece, oh, this is what I'm building. If it's a tiny piece, this is probably what we're working on. So it's helpful to understand those patterns. And truthfully, as humans, we love patterns, don't we? Now, I don't mean like, oh, I'm not wearing a patterned shirt today. It's like the first time ever I'm not wearing plaid on the stage. Um, but normally, if you see me here on the week, I'll have a plaid shirt on. There's a pattern on my shirt. That's not the kind of pattern I'm talking about, though. We love patterns. Our brains are designed to find patterns and repeat patterns. Did you know that? Did you know that your brain is actually lazy? So when somebody tells you you need to go to the gym, you just say, it's not my fault, it's my brain, Right? 
I'm just saying, right? Our brains are actually lazy, right? They like to be efficient. They like to do the same thing over and over again. And so our brains are designed to find patterns. And if something looks the same or feels the same or smells the same, it will process that information the same way it did the last time because that's efficient. That's less energy than creating new neural pathways, creating new memories, creating new thought processes. It's way more efficient. And so we are designed for patterns. Now, the problem with this is when we get into patterns that are not great for us. No amen to that? I mean, anybody been in there? Anybody have a pattern that they can go, man, I know exactly what that's like, to be in a pattern that is not healthy for me, right? Like, there's all kinds of patterns that we get into that are, that are not good, right? And our brain just wants to repeat them. Sometimes we don't even realize that we're in them. Uh, I'll give you an example of one that happens to me all the time. In fact, my wife still corrects me on this one pretty much at least once a week. See, when I was single... I did the dishes. I thought maybe you'd cheer for me for that. I'm just, I'm kidding. Okay, but I did. I, like, I did my own dishes. And, and so for many years, I did my own dishes. I loaded the dishwasher myself, right? I'm proud of myself. Um, so we did that, right? And, and so, but what I didn't know until I got married, and in fact, I didn't actually know until just a few years ago, a long time of being married, that I was doing the dishes incorrectly. <laughs> apparently, apparently, the silverware, when you put it in the little drawer, the little tray for the silverware, is supposed to face up, right? Like, apparently it gets cleaner that way. I don't know, right? But for years, like, I'm going, forks are pointy, they go down, right? Since they go down, spoons go down, right? So, I mean, that was just my thought process. And so still, to this day, when I load the dishwasher, I typically have to go back and take all the forks back out and turn them around because I've done it wrong. Because the pattern in my brain says, oh, fork goes in this way. For, you know. So that's just the pattern repeating, right? And that's, that's kind of a silly example, but you get the point. But where we get into real trouble is where those patterns play out in our relationships. Now, this is church, so I know that none of us ever have arguments with the significant people in our lives. <clears throat> ever. Especially not pastors, just so you know. My wife's here. You heard her laughing. Okay. Um, so here's, here's what happens though, right? We do, right? In our relationships. Like think about this. Think about the, um, for those of you who are, who are still in the dating scene, right? Think about uh, the dating pattern that you're in. Isn't there a pattern to that, right? Aren't you seeing that things will repeat themselves? If you're not intentional, if you're not, uh, if you're not doing it on purpose, these things will repeat themselves in your dating relationship. Those of you who are married, think about the last argument you had with your spouse, now, I'm not saying it was about the same thing, although it may have been, but what I am saying is that it probably followed a similar pattern. For example, in our home, what will often happen is my wife will come to me very kindly and very sweetly and say, hey, babe, uh, I'd appreciate it if you did this thing the other way, like the dishwasher, right? <clears throat> and I'll go, like, inside, I'm going, well, you don't get to tell me what to do, right? Like, that's, that's my initial response. I have to suppress that, and I go, okay, yeah, I got it, babe. Like, I got it. And, and so the, the, the conversation might continue, and I may respond to that with, because, you know, I'm, I'm really not feeling great about being corrected by my wife, even though, even though she's almost always right. Um, I'm really not feeling great about that. So I might respond with a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of an attitude, a little bit of sarcasm in my voice. And what I know is that that's like poking her, right? Like, I know. It's like I'm saying yes, but really I'm saying fine, right? right? And so then she will respond with a little bit of attitude, and then my attitude grows, and then her attitude grows, and then pretty soon people are yelling, and the cops are coming. I'm just kidding. Like, that, it doesn't get that serious, okay? But, but seriously, like, I can find the pattern that we go down, right, in our argument, and pretty soon, like, we end up at the same place because like we're just in this pattern but my my least favorite pattern that I tend to fall into is with my kids 
And um, as a father, this is, hurts me to say, I'm, I'm going to be vulnerable with you and honest with you uh, this morning. This is the pattern that I often fall into with my kids, and I think some of us uh, here can relate to this. What will happen is I will um, come to my children and say to my children, um, guys, I need you uh, to do something, please. Uh, like, oftentimes, it's clean your room. How is it that their rooms are never clean, ever? Like, I just, I don't understand. Anyway, um, so I'll come to them and say, hey, guys, like, I need you to clean your room, right? And so they will go, uh, okay, Dad, got it. And then they don't move off the couch, right? Right, like, they're not moving at all. And I'm like, guys, no, no, seriously, now. Like, I need you to clean your room right now. Go to your rooms. So then they go up to their rooms, and I go check on them about five minutes later, and nothing's, they, like, they're in their rooms, but nothing's being cleaned, right? They're just sitting in their rooms, and I'm going, guys, like, stop playing clean your rooms. And you, you can hear, right? My frustration is building. It's getting higher and higher. And pretty soon, I'll come back in. They still haven't cleaned their rooms. And what is my go-to response? It will be yelling, right? Guys, right now, it's time to clean your rooms. I don't care what you're doing. Stop it, right? And I just kind of have this moment where I might go off on it. If I'm not intentional, that is the pattern I will follow with my kids, right? And here's what happens. My kids are trying, and I feel guilty for yelling, and really nobody's happy anymore. Like the whole house is in like this weird, disunified, disjointed state. Everybody's like now walking on eggshells, right? It's really like nobody's happy in that situation. But one thing has happened that is positive. What's the one thing that's happened that's positive? The rooms are clean. So what did my brain learn in that moment? If I yell, they will clean their rooms. Now this is dangerous, This is dangerous because if the only thing that matters is that their rooms get clean, then yelling is a good strategy. If what really matters is our relationship and how my kids respond to me and how my kids feel about me and what kind of influence I have to speak into their lives, if those things matter, yelling is not a good strategy because all those things got broken, right? And this is what happens to us in these relational patterns. We find something that works, but often we're focused on the wrong thing. It's like being in the Lego um, book, right, and focusing on just that piece and not realizing what we're really trying to accomplish overall, what we're really trying to build in the big picture. And so this morning, what I want to do is look into some of those close-up pictures of how do we build relationship with our our kids, right? We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 6. If you have a Bible, you can turn to that page. Uh, We're going to look at this close-up, zoomed-in thing that Paul gives us on kids and parents, and we're going to look on the next section, which is about uh, bond servants and masters. And we're going to zoom into those things and read them and and see what they say, but then we're going to back up. Because something that we forget sometimes is that Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, who wrote the letter of Ephesians, didn't write Ephesians to Americans in the 21st century. Did you know that? He wrote it to people living in Ephesus, Romans and Jews living there in the first century. The other thing we forget, uh, because we're so trained with email and text messages and Twitter and Facebook and 140 characters, like we're so trained for short messages that we forget that this wasn't Paul sending out a text about parenting and a text about servants and masters. This was Paul writing an entire letter. And so if we only focus on part of the letter, we're going to miss Paul's intent. We're going to miss the big picture. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at these sections, but then we're going to step back and look at the entire letter and see how these fit in with the entire letter. And then we're going to look for the patterns. 
The patterns that we can repeat, they're going to help us to have better relationships. They're going to help us to have unity in our relationships. They're going to help us to stay together with the people that we care about staying together with. Okay? So that's what we're going to do. If you've got a Bible, Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, the text is going to be up on the screen. Um, I need to make uh, just one more comment here. I know that we're used to um, the outlines on the back of our bulletin, some of us, um, where we have fill in the blanks. And you might notice that there's one giant blank today. Um, so let me apologize for those of you who love fill in the blanks. Uh, let me apologize to you. And, and my, only, um, my only response to that is it was VBS. Okay, enough said. All right, so uh, it is what it is. But here's my recommendation, all right? If you're a note taker, if you love those things, if you go back and read them over and over again, here's my suggestion to you. Um, write down the scriptures that we're gonna look at. We're gonna look at a lot of scripture today. We're gonna go through a whole book of Ephesians. So write down the references and then go back and read them and then read the context around them. That's gonna be really helpful for you in understanding these concepts uh, after today, okay? So that's my suggestion with that blank sheet of paper. All right, here we go. Uh, Ephesians chapter six, verse one. Here's what it says, children, Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now we're gonna pause right there. All right, pretty straightforward stuff. Obey your parents in the Lord. This is the right thing to do. Fathers, don't be harsh with your children, but bring them up in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. I mean, you guys are smart, right? You can read that. I, I don't need to expound on that a whole lot. What does it mean? It means exactly what it says. But here's what you do need to know. There's a context here. Because remember, Paul is writing to Ephesus in the first century. And in the first century, Romans and Jewish fathers had complete authority over their children. And when I say complete authority, I don't mean like I get to decide what's best for you, what school you go to, what you're going to eat. No, no, I have complete authority over your entire life. If I decide that your actions uh, would cause a significant enough consequence, then I can have you killed. That kind of authority, right? Uh, In my research, I found a letter from a Roman uh, soldier writing back to his wife saying, hey, I'm so glad that you're pregnant. Uh, If it's a boy, then that is wonderful. If it's a girl, leave it outside. That kind of authority, the only thing that held them back, the only restraint on them was public opinion, what other people would think about them for their actions, right? So it's in that context that Paul writes, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Now, what what we need to understand here is that when Paul says obey your parents, he's not saying like, like you had a choice, like you get to choose to obey or not, so you should probably obey. Children did not have a choice, And I don't mean just little kid children. In that culture, that authority of the father was extended until the father passed away. There was no age in which a son or a daughter was no longer accountable to their father. Until the father died, you were under his authority in that culture. And so it's in that context that Paul says, hey, look, you have to obey anyway. But do it willingly because it's the right thing to do. Honor your father and your mother. This is a promise with it. It's going to go well with you. You're going to live long in the land. Now, immediately, some of us go, yeah, yeah, but, but if you knew my dad, like Pastor Sam, if you knew my parents, there's no way you would tell me to do this. And I'm saying, I'm not telling you to do anything. Paul is writing, obey your parents, that this is the right thing to do. And here's what I would say. If I could interpret for Paul just for a second, here's what I think Paul would say to us. This letter was written 
to Christian communities. The expectation here, the, the ideal situation is that fathers are doing their job, children are doing their job, that all of it is working together and it's building unity with one another. But even if that's not the case, you have an accountability to God to do what he's asked you to do as much as you possibly can. So if you can obey your parents, then obey your parents. If you can't, because what they're asking you to do is sinful, harmful, going to hurt you, going to hurt somebody else, then don't obey them. Because you're accountable to God, ultimately, not just to these parental units, right? And he would say the same thing to fathers, right? Fathers, yes, train and instruct them, but remember, you're accountable to God in your training instruction. Now, now this word honor, we, we don't throw this word around a lot. I mean, we, we talk about honor in a military culture sometimes, but, but, but let's understand what Paul means here by honor. What he's meaning here is by giving the proper respect to. And you may say, well, my parents don't deserve any respect. And that may be true. Like, I've heard some stories that would curdle your blood with how terrible some parents have been to their children. I get that. But here's what I can tell you. To honor that kind of a parent, to honor the parent that doesn't deserve honor, looks like this. You don't go around telling everyone how terrible they were. You don't just spread all of the the horrible, nasty things you can all over Facebook and say, my dad was this awful person. Now, it's okay to talk about those things in, in a couple of contexts. When it's for your safety, when it's for the safety of someone else, or when it's for your healing. So if you're talking to a pastor, you're talking to a friend, you're talking to a counselor who's going to help you get past some hurt, it's okay to talk about those things. But not just to spread the, the rumor and the, the vile, you know, just this ugly poison for the sake of spreading it. That's what it looks like to honor a dishonorable parent, okay? Now, all this is going to become a little bit more clear when we get to the end and we see the pattern, okay? But we're going to move on for right now. Uh, the next section here, Paul writes to bond servants and masters. Now, I'm going quick, guys, because we just don't have nearly enough time. Um, bond servants and masters. Most of us don't have uh, servants. Anybody have a servant? Because I'm coming to live at your house. No, I didn't think so. Okay. So most of us don't have servants and masters uh, in this day. But what we do have is bosses and employees, right? You have coworkers. You have managers. You have people that you're accountable to in your work. There are people who are accountable to you in your work. And so we can apply this to that context. And here's what he says. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord, not to man. And he goes on saying, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will be, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing he, that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Now, again, you guys are smart, right? You you can read this. It's pretty clear. If you work for someone, do a good job. Work hard for them. Work as if you're working for the Lord. Don't just give lip service. Actually do the job well. If someone works for you, treat them really well. Be kind to them. Don't be harsh with them. Don't be mean to them. Like this, this isn't hard for us to understand. This is pretty straightforward. But, but here's where the question comes in again, well, what if my boss isn't worth, like, what if my boss isn't worth serving? What if my boss doesn't do things the right way? What if he's unethical? What if he's immoral? What if these things come up? What if my employees are terrible? What if they're awful, terrible people and I have to constantly get on them to do the things that they're supposed to do, right? Well, well, again, if we step back and look at the big picture, Paul's intent here will become clear. And because we're really short on time, we're going to jump right to that, okay? We're going to go fast. So everybody's got to hold on tight. Here we go. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. This is all the way back to the beginning of Ephesians. Here's what Paul says, right? Now we're looking at the big picture. We're stepping back and going, what is Paul trying to build? What's the overall intent of this? And here's what he says. 
in him, this is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. All right, so pause right there. Paul is saying, Paul's really wordy, but Paul is saying, you have been brought in, you've been saved, you've been brought into the body of Christ, you've been brought in to Christ to, for a purpose. And that purpose is becoming full. In the fullness of time, that purpose is going to reach its, its completeness, right? And so what he says, that purpose is, is this, to unite all things in him, unite all things in Christ, things in heaven, and things on earth. So the purpose of all of this is to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. And this makes sense if we remember how we got to this place in the first place. Way back in Genesis chapter 3, sin enters the world. Prior to sin entering the world, we have perfect unity with mankind. Between people, there's perfect unity. Between man and God, there's perfect unity. Nothing is broken. There is no need for, uh, for rule or authoritative uh, you know, commands because it's in perfect unity. There's perfect submission, perfect unity in the garden prior to sin. Sin enters the world and all that gets broken. And so Paul says, look, the purpose, the reason Christ died, the reason he went to the cross, the reason all of this has happened is to the restoral of all things, the renewal of all things, because God is uniting to himself things on earth and things in heaven. We are being reunited to what used to be. In Galatians, he says it this way, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We are being brought into one. And since that is the purpose, to find this unity, to find this oneness in Christ, Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 4, right? He's going to expound on that a whole bunch in Ephesians 2 and 3, and then we get to 4, and this is what Paul says, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So in Ephesians 4, we find out, here's the purpose. You've been saved to become a part of this grand purpose that is the uniting of all things under Christ. Things in heaven and things in earth being united under Christ. Since you've been called to that, walk worthy of the calling. Walk worthy of the calling. And then he goes on in Ephesians 4, 17. He says, and I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So we're, we're being united like, that's the purpose. The purpose is unity. So since the purpose is unity, walk worthy of that. Don't walk like you used to. Then Ephesians 5, here's what he says. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. We're being brought into unity. Because we're being brought into unity, live as, as worthy of that calling. Don't live like you used to. Instead, be like Christ. Love like he did. Live like he did. And finally, in 521, he says this. And I think this is the linchpin for all of it. This is, this is what holds the whole thing together. He says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the first thing he says, the first instruction on how to do this thing. The first real direct instruction for relationships on what it looks like to live in unity, to live worthy of the calling, to not live like you used to, to love and live like Jesus. To do that means to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then, with all of that framework, with all of that big picture, Paul's going to go into some very specific relationships and what it looks like to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ in those relationships. And these weren't chosen randomly. These were the most common relationships that the Ephesians would have had. 
the first thing he says is wives and husbands. He says, wives, submit to your husbands, and husbands, love your wives. Now, now we read that, and if we only read that, just that section, if we don't read 521 first, if we only read that, it sounds like wives have to submit and husbands have to leave, but here, lead. But here's what we don't get. Those are actually, in the, in the kingdom, in God's language, those are the same thing. Submitting to one another means you put the other person first. It means you put their needs above your needs. You put their desires above your needs, uh, your desires. You put them first. So when Paul says, submit to your husbands, and then he says, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, what is he calling husbands to do in that moment? To do the exact same thing. To lead like Jesus did. And how did Jesus lead? Submitted to the will of the Father, serving with his entire life, giving his life up, and taking accountability, not for his own actions, but for our actions. He put others first. And and when we realize this, the pattern becomes clear. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husband loves your wives. Children, obey your parents. Parents, don't be harsh with your children. Slaves, obey your masters. Masters, be kind to your slaves. Do you see the pattern? The pattern is this. Submit serve, take accountability for other people. Submit, serve, take accountability for other people. Submit, serve, take accountability for other people. Here's what that looks like. I'm submitted to the will of the Father. God says, have a good relationship with your children. It says, raise them in the knowledge and instruction of the Lord. I'm submitted to God's will. So I serve my children by training them, by teaching them. And when they don't do the thing that I've taught them to do or the thing that I desire for them to do, I don't blame them. I say, I haven't led you well enough. I haven't served you well enough. I haven't done my job as the one who's accountable for this. And that is why you haven't done your job. So when your room's not clean, it's not your fault. It's my fault. Because I've taught you that you don't have to do it until I yell. That's my fault. And so what it looks like to be in relationship in the kingdom is I submit to the will of the Father. I serve the people around me well. And I take accountability for their actions because if they are doing it wrong, it means I've done it wrong in these places. I haven't submitted to the will of the Father and I haven't served them well enough in my leadership. That's what it looks like. And if we will establish this pattern, can you imagine what would happen in your relationships? If every single person in this room said, look, I'm submitted to the Father, first and foremost. And because of that, I'm submitted to the people around me to serve them well, to put their needs first, to do what they need first, to do their desires first, to make sure they have what they need, to lead them well, to teach them well, to instruct them well. I'm serving with my whole life. And when it doesn't go the way it should, I don't blame them, I take accountability. Doesn't that sound like it would breed unity? It does. When it's going well and all the people involved are submitted to one another and serving one another and leading well and taking accountability well, it breeds unity. But even when it's not going well, when someone is not doing that, when you have a boss that just refuses to be kind, when you have a parent who just refuses to be kind, when you have a spouse that is just difficult to live with, when you still do this, it causes them to pause And go, why do you love me? Why are you serving me? Why are you taking responsibility for what I know I did? And it gives you the opportunity to point them to the gospel. And so submitting to one another always brings unity eventually. Always. 
And so as we look at these things, we submit to one another. We serve each other well. And we take accountability for what other people are doing. And when we do that, it breeds this unity. This is hard. <laughs> like, I, I'm not going to stand up here and pretend like this is the easiest. Like, just go home and implement this pattern today, man. You got it. This is a hard, hard thing. Because for most of us, the world has taught us a different pattern. It's taught us to put ourselves first. It's taught us to make sure people respect us. It's taught us to make sure that we get what we need, that we take care of that, that, that people do what we ask them to do. It's taught us to do that. That's the pattern the world has taught us. But I'm telling you, this pattern will bring unity and will bring life and will bring peace into your relationships.